we don't know how to liberate energy because we've failed to understand its origin, because we've failed to understand our origin, because we've failed to understand ourselves as a system that's iterating for higher potential. And so as we stop and take a look at our full potential, it's going to dwell down here in this interesting space between the possibility of life and its expression towards capturing the infinite energy towards the purpose of communication. And in a deep meditation I did uh, last year, I, I realized that the all infinite energy is actually all information. Every pixel of energy in the universe is a form of information. And we know this on a high level. We know how cell phones work. We know how the internet works vaguely, fiber optic cables. We know that energy is equivalent to information. But when you know this at the cellular level, it really sinks in for you that energy is infinite and all energy is information. And then you ask, why is earth iterating life? Why for 4 billion years are we seeing this iteration of life get more and more complex, more and more biodiverse, more and more beautiful? I think it has something to do with the fact that the energy that is infinite, that is all information, is information for the purpose of communication. So let's take those three pieces down, away from us today. If you want to write three things down from this morning, because you won't remember a damn thing I said. Energy is infinite. All energy is information, and all information is there for the purpose of communication. So that is the purpose of life, is to iterate again and again, to refine our interface with energy, to become a better and better translator of energy into, and its information stream into pure communication. And the gut-brain axis is this extraordinary mechanism that looks to be biomimicry of the microbiome itself to improve the speed and transmission of information across species. That's what you are. You are a physical being designed to accelerate the communication between species. Your neurologic system is uniquely designed to accelerate and perfect the communication between tens of thousands of species of bacteria hundreds of thousands of species of protozoa, millions of species of fungi, and one human species at the center to become the communication highway, to become the internet hub between these species. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is where hope grows. Hey everyone, this is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Hey friends, are you ready to receive the most profound, intense, highest vibrating frequency of light energy? Well, that's what we have in store today. And to get there, that light energy is going to be converted to some kind of audio sound energy. You're going to receive that information. And all information is for the purpose of communication. And there's no one better to communicate the connectedness, the profoundness, the architecture of the human experience in our design as species who are intended to co-create, who are co-designed to participate in this beautiful world that we can celebrate. No one can do this better than Zach Bush, MD. Now, today's podcast is super special because we are taking the intro speech from our keynote speaker, who's Zach Bush, from our first annual What Good Shall I Do conference, which was the Regenerative Agriculture Super Bowl conference that took place here at Rome Ranch in Fredericksburg, Texas in the fall of 2022. Zach Bush is an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to human health, disease, and our food system. What I particularly admire about Dr. Bush the most is that he speaks from a place of hope. And that hope 
is radiating. It's contagious. Through his courage and through his wisdom, Dr. Bush has been a transformative figure in my life and greatly impacted my own trajectory, specifically as it relates to soil health, ecosystem health, human health, and the community that ties it all together. Now, as we kicked off this conference, we actually lost the first 10 minutes of this live recording. If you've ever seen Dr. Bush speak, he emanates so much energy that he blows up fucking microphones. I mean, the sound system was going crazy. It couldn't contain, it couldn't translate, it couldn't direct his energy in the right direction. So we had to take a break and Dr. Bush instructed, he led everyone in the audience, over 400 people in a high intensity four minute workout to stimulate our mitochondria, to clear the room of energy and it worked. It cleared the damn energy out of the room. And so what you're about to hear, well, I have to say the first 10 minutes of the sound audio, still kind of shitty, but hang in there. It gets better. And the information that's contained within this recording, it can change your life. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's Dr. Zach Bush kicking off the first annual What Good Shall I Do conference. Nature does something. She tests it out. And she advances the knowledge that she gets back from that experience. This nature is experiential, ultimately. We need to become more experiential in the ways in which we live and share in community. And I believe Rome Ranch has become an extraordinary example of that. What you guys doing here is iterating possibility. You guys came and moved on to dead land, as, as so many regenerative farmers have done across this country. And they have imagined a possibility of life under their feet, life re-emerging to show them something of beauty that was not there a moment before. That is a microcosm of what Mother Nature did to allow us to appear. Four billion years ago, the mitochondria start working in their archaic form, and then they move and they shift. Three and a half billion years ago, we see an acceleration of life on Earth because we learned how to share information more effectively. And we did that by instead of horizontal gene transfer from one bacterium to the next that was abutting it, we learned how to send messages genetically around the planet. So we sent messages via a new packet of information. We figured out how to envelope genetic information and send it into the air. Four billion years later, there would be a species that would call those viruses and would demonize those things. But it was the origin of life. The first pandemic on the planet was a pandemic of life. It happened all over the place. And it happened through an iterative process of possibility. Because a virus is ultimately a small genetic code that offers up a new option for cells to do something different. We've heard a lot about demonizing of viruses. We've heard a lot about a gain of function lab in China or something like this. I, I just have to laugh as a scientist to hear about a lab that does gain of function. I don't think we have a lab that's ever done gain of function in the pharmaceutical industry. We, we destroy function with everything we put on. In fact, that is our purpose, is to screw up biology. We block receptors to lower your blood pressure. We, we stimulate receptors to disrupt cycles in your brain so you're less depressed. We, we disrupt everything in the pharmaceutical world. The first gain of function laboratory was a bacterium that learned how to iterate, put out new genetic codes of possibility, the virome would be birth. The virome is a description of the entire genetic library over the planet. And the numbers are vast in the books that live in this library. In the air that we are breathing today, there are 10 to the 31 different viruses. That's the one with 31 zeros after it. You're starting to look at about the same number are stars in the universe. When you take into the number of the 10 to the 31 viruses in the ocean water, there's another 10 to the 30 viruses in the soils beneath our feet. So you start to add up all of those numbers and you start to see that we are a pixel of genetic information as humans. But we were a collective. We were an iterative process of possibility. You guys can sit down now. 
I can see your energy waning here. Your light is starting to go out. I'm not going to make you do another, another four-minute workout, but I'm glad for you to light it up. You see how it worked? This thing's working. We'll give a little bit of credit to the IT department, too. Thank you for getting the microphones working. But you guys cleared the energy in the room. And I want you to know that we can do that. We can clear the energy in the room, especially if there's two or more gathered. If this thing starts going crazy again, I'm going to make you all stand up again. The virome was a possibility of life. And the more stress you put microorganisms or multicellular organisms under, the faster they iterate, the faster they create possibility. And I love that about nature. She sees stress as opportunity. We see stress as some sort of destructive endpoint. And so we have come to believe in a state of scarcity that has evolved our understanding of all things. We believe that life is scarce, and so we cling to it, and we are afraid to lose it. And for clinging to it and being afraid to lose it, we tend to keep it in a protective box. And we've done that with the virome. We've decided we are humans, we need to protect our genome, and so we're gonna to try to kill all the bacteria and all the viruses so they don't attack us. If you decode the human genome, we're a pretty basic bunch. We only have 20,000 genes, which is pretty extraordinary because we have 400,000 different proteins that are made from those genes. So we thought we had 400,000 genes, which was a reasonable understanding because Watson and Crick told us that one strain of DNA that made a gene would make one protein. Turns out they were wrong, not their fault, just didn't have the science and comes along 50 years later and turns out when we decoded the human genome, we had one-tenth of what we thought we had. And it was really a dismal number because we'd already decoded the human or the fruit fly, which had 13,000 genes, and the flea that had 30,000 genes. And so you sit somewhere between a flea and a fruit fly genetically, which explains a lot to your wife. It makes a lot of sense why we do what we do when we look at the fact that our genome is super simple. We are very basic, somewhere between a flea and a fruit fly. And yet we do this extraordinary thing called life, called human life, in an iterative process where we learn from our environment to express something more complex than ourselves. I find that beautiful. You were born with 20,000 genes from mom and dad, but you go through an iterative process in the womb and then in an accelerated form as soon as you exit the womb to become who you are today through an iterative process of possibility of what body you could build today. You listen to the environment by breathing the viruses. A neonate at seven days of age has no immune system as we understand it. It doesn't make antibodies. It doesn't have this you know, adaptive immune system that got so much attention in the last two years, antibodies to coronavirus, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you don't get that capacity in, an, in a, a human body until about four to six months of age. At seven days of age, there's 10 to the ninth viruses in that baby's bloodstream. 10 to the nine is about 10 billion, right? So you got around a billion to 10 billion viruses in that baby's bloodstream on day seven. And it's about 10 times that many viruses in their stool. That baby is thriving, not because it lacks an immune system, but because it is iterating in every single cell to understand what its possibilities are as it reacts to new genetic information that is not from mom and dad. Have ever of you have any of you ever gotten to that point in life where you look around at your own immediate family and wonder where you come from? I mean, I'm looking at most of you and I'm wondering where you come from anyways. I don't even know your family. You're an odd bunch. You come from a environment more than a bloodline of humans. Your environment has shaped your genetics far more in many ways than your parents did because they only had 20,000 genes. The fungi that are out here in the environment around us as a kingdom have five million genes. The fungi are communicating with you with every breath you take and they are iterating new possibilities of who you become. When you think about breathing in 10 to the 31 viruses, what you're really talking about is new genetic possibilities that are being handed to you by all of nature. And so when we see chemical farming launch in the mid-70s, it really took hold, but it was really all the way back into the 50s and 60s, the beginning is the Green Revolution, 
all of this that we started to build out a chemical infrastructure built really around the philosophy of inputs even before herbicides and pesticides, right? So we already had the dust bowl before World War II. We had killed all of the topsoil in the country through poor soil management, no crop rotation, an extractive technology of farming. And the plow was really the thing that did all the damage. And so when you over-disc or over-plow a piece of land, you destroy the infrastructure of the soil. Ray Archuleta taught me this better than anybody else on the planet could have on our first day of filming. He's doing a soil test to show me organic soil versus conventional soil, and the organic soil is performing less well than the, than the chemical farm conventional soil, and I was devastated. I thought I was going to go tell everybody, we got this glyphosate problem, all you got to do is eat organic. And I'm watching dead dirt fall apart in a column of water, as Ray shows us. There is no life within this. It doesn't matter if you call it USDA organic or not, there is no life in it. Because it turns out the organic certification does not have in its checkbook or checklist anything that says life, anything that says nutrients, anything that says biodiversity. There's nothing. It basically says you will not do these following things. All right, let's take a break and dive into deconstructing this very bold statement that organic soil performs worse than conventional industrial chemical soil. Now, this is a problem with the USDA organic program, and it falls short. It was a step in the right direction when it was established, but the program has failed to evolve since it began in 2002. What modern organic agriculture looks like today, it's terrifying. It's industrialized, it's mechanized, and it's prescriptive. Now, what consumers may not realize is that organic agricultural practices are no better for the land than conventional industrial chemical agriculture practices. You might be saying, that's impossible. Get the hell out of here, Taylor. But I'm telling you, when it comes to livestock, to be USDA organic certified, you can feed a ruminant animal like a cow, bison, goat, sheep, an animal that was designed to eat grass and green growing plants, you can feed them a diet that's not consistent with their evolutionary biology. It's not species appropriate. They can be fed organic corn that makes them sick and that meat will be labeled organic. Now, that's not better for the animal. That sure in hell isn't better for the land and that's not better for the end consumer. Now, when we shift gears and we look at plant-based agriculture, we fail short massively here because when farmers are not allowed to use chemicals to manage their weeds, guess what their only tool is? It's mechanical. They hook up tills to the tractor and they plow fields. They eliminate all biological life in that field in order to create a monoculture of their desirable annual cash crop. And when these organic farmers are limited by their tools to manage weeds, well, they depend on the till. They get addicted to the till. It's not uncommon for organic farmers to plow fields two to three times more often than conventional industrial farmers. It's due to this addiction to tilling that the soil structure is annihilated. The soil biology is eliminated. The soil will perform worse than conventional soil. Now, I do want to say that this is industrial scaled organic. This isn't like a backyard permaculture, small scale, regional farmers market organic, right? This is big multinational corporations checking the box, adhering to the thou shall not do mentality, but at the sacrifice of the health of the land, the health of the food and the health of the end consumer. Now, I sure in hell don't want to be eating food that's sprayed with chemicals directly associated with various forms of cancer, right? Chemical agriculture is awful. It represents chemical warfare against Mother Nature, against you and me, against our water systems, against all biology. It's unacceptable. It should be illegal. But what I'm talking about is that organic is not the end destination. It's just a step in the right direction. Now, this is where the capacity and the power of regenerative agriculture comes into play. This is outcome-based, it's nourishing, it's healing, and it's consistent with the architecture of Mother Nature. And now, 
Back to Zach Bush. Whenever we go by a list of you shall nots, we end up really screwing up the environment, the world we live in, our own self-identity. We need to start living by a list of we shalls. And as we start to reimagine the we shalls in the context of what I just told you, that life actually came out of the virome, which is a communication network of genetic possibility of life on Earth, and it is adapted and adopted on a daily basis in an iterative process in every single one of your 70 trillion cells, we should begin at, we shall respect nature. <laughs> because it turns out that 50, more than 50%, some 58% of the genes that I have in my body, those mere 20,000 in each cell, were not inherited from mom and dad. They were inherited directly from viruses. 58% of the human genome was inserted directly by viruses. And these were critical updates. Talk about gain of function. One of them allowed for the placenta to occur. For reptiles and avian species to go from egg laying to the first mammal that would have a placenta and give live birth, we needed a bunch of viral updates. And so a critical retrovirus similar to HIV would infuse itself into a few living organisms, and they would adapt that into the capacity to have live birth. A gain of function is had. And so we are a part of the imagination of nature that is mechanized or, or manifested through the information exchange of life itself. The fabric of how life occurs is an iterative process of possibility. And I believe we're all shooting for an imagination of a higher and higher amount of light energy within every single cell, because that seems to be the march of the last 4 billion years. With every iteration of life, we see an improvement in the amount of light energy held within a single cell. And it gets pretty exciting when you can, as a physician, boil it down this simple. Because up until that moment of realization for me, it was starting to look like an impossible equation. We were going to go extinct in the next 70, 80 years, because of the rate of chronic disease and the failure of fertility in our species. Over the last 40 years, we lost 60% of sperm counts in males across all of the Western civilization. 60% of sperm gone. We're now down to an average around 45 million sperm per milliliter, which if you look at the bell curve of where we're at in that, one in three males globally in Western civilization is now sterile by low sperm counts, less than 15 million per, per milliliter. And so we have, are quickly moving towards a space where reproduction is going to become a thing of the past. And no doubt we will go through some short brief period where we try to technologically solve for this by more test tube babies, more you know, in vitro fertilization. We'll come up with all kinds of things and it's happening right now. If any of you are in your 30s, you know half a dozen of your friends doing in vitro fertilization right now. Nobody had that situation going on 15 years ago. It has become normal and we tend to normalize things very quickly as, as humans. We rationalize things, we normalize them and we have come to accept an extraordinary low vibration of energy within the human body right now. We've come to accept depression as a normal phenomenon, anxiety disorders, sleep disorders, sexual dysfunction, infertility. We've come to accept that most children will have disease by the time they're two or three years old, and it will look like asthma, eczema, allergies to food, allergies to the air they breathe. Don't you think food allergies should not be a sentence possible to put together? How did we normalize the possibility that children cannot be fed, especially things that we've been eating for thousands of years? And so we have normalized and rationalized an extraordinarily poor relationship back to our nature again. And so we're going to look deep in today and we're going to hear incredible speakers give us insights into what the pathways out of this situation might look like. But I think my job is not to be your keynote or anything like that. My job is to narrate your energy, narrate your possibility for you and be a mirror to you to say, what if... You shift everything to become a co-creator rather than a consumer. For too long, we've accepted the definition of consumers for all of us. For too long, we've been like, you know, telling each other, it's okay, we're the consumers, we, we can figure everything out. We're the consumers, we dictate big business. Damn right, right, we do. We created all that by that consumerism. 
But we haven't made that philosophical leap yet to say we need to be creators rather than consumers. Many of you are doing this now, and I herald this audience here. I am telling you your own journey. Many of you are already creating with Mother Nature on your pieces of land across this country, across this planet. My hat is off to you. My boots will be off to you, and I will stand on your hallowed ground so that I can feel the life underneath my feet that you have been a part of bringing forth. There is no higher calling today than being in co-creation with the land beneath our feet. Because not only will it solve for this crisis of one in eight children not able to breathe from asthma, one in four children with some sort of you know, uh, disorder of immune system with allergies, skin dysfunction, gut dysfunction. We've got one in 30 children now on autism spectrum disorder. In 1975, right with the debut of, of glyphosate and Roundup, there was one in 5,000 children with autism spectrum disorder. So we've gone from one in 5,000 to one in 30 over this brief period of time. If you look at, at 1996 as an inflection point when we rolled out genetically modified corn, soybean, and a bunch of others, squash predated that. That always amazes me that GMO Roundup Ready squash was the first thing on the market. Nobody talks about that. Guess it didn't stick. Nobody likes eating squash. But you know, 94 squash, 96, you see corn, soybeans go in. And by 2003, 2004, it's 95% of soybeans, 85% of corn has become genetically modified to be Roundup Ready. And we're spraying those crops with this chemical uh, compound multiple times a year. And what happened in 1996 was an explosion of neurologic dysfunction within the population at all ages. And so we saw an extraordinary uptick in Parkinson's in males, Alzheimer's in women, attention deficit in children, autism spectrum disorder in 18-month-olds. All took off at the same time, 1996. Massive hockey stick event. 1996 to 2006, we were going through these incredible, staggering rates of chronic disease that we had never seen mounting. In 1995, the, the leading cause of, of a physician visit was low back pain, and it had been that for 50 years. Low back pain was the typical complaint in a primary care office. By 1998, it was starting to be eclipsed by weird things that we hadn't been talking about before, things like fibromyalgia, chronic regional pain syndromes, chronic fatigue syndromes, you know, intense disruptions of sleep disorders, all within a few years period. Stunning that we didn't start sounding alarm bells quicker as physicians and scientists. Stunning that as consumers, we didn't see this as a warning sign of, of our collective behavior. But I want you to think about the, the possibility that we are being shown something very important in the fact that it was neurologic dysfunction that appeared to be followed by certainly immune dysfunction, autoimmune problems, all of that certainly in the couple years after that. But your brain as a central processing unit and a huge peripheral nervous system was the first to pick up on the, as a symptomatic or expression of this crisis of the microbiome under our feet. The brain, it turns out, has never thought of anything. The brain is actually a central processing unit just taking in a bunch of information. It's very much like the Intel processor in your laptop or your computer. That Intel processor has never had an original thought. The Intel processor in your computer has never written a term paper. The keyboard, has to have data entered into it to get that term paper into fruition. But your keyboard on your laptop is never in a paper. And it turns out your fingers have to type on that thing that we call a computer or it's completely st st static. It doesn't do anything. It sits there. It turns out that your central processing unit here has never had a thought because it's just a CPU chip. It turns out that the peripheral nervous system has to bring in an enormous amount of data from all of the information that it absorbs for this to make any sense of patterns and therefore put together a pattern recognition thing and then a behavior that would stem from that. So what are the fingers on the keyboard of your brain? This should be the most important question we've ever asked ourselves as humans. And it got answered just a couple years ago in some extraordinary studies 
that were done at UCSD and UCSF in California, leave it to the hippie doctors to figure something like this out, they were doing high definition imaging of the gut lining and they found that the afferent nerves, which there are so many afferent nerves in your gut that it actually is larger in number than the total neurons in a dog's brain. And so this is a massive intelligence center that is sticking out its prongs of the afferent nerves past the gut lining. And this was the breakthrough of realization that sticking out past the gut lining is all these tiny little nerve endings that are picking up information, the fingers on the keyboard. Rivaling those in numbers are the enteric endocrine cells that line the gut lining and produce over 50% of the dopamine and 90% of the serotonin in your body. So the neurotransmitters that will go on to process the information in the central processing unit is made by the enteric endocrine cells. The information typing on the keyboard or the keyboard itself will say, are the afferent nerves in your gut? And the breakthrough was when they discovered that there are a number of species of bacterium that speak directly to the nerves in the gut lining. They also speak directly, another group of species of bacteria speak directly to the enteric endocrine cells. And they do this through a process of information transfer that looks identical to the way in which a nerve communicates with another nerve through these little vesicle transfers. And so it's amazing to imagine that we stem from a genetic pool of information that it was already doing neural transfer, information transfer like mechanisms long before the first human brain. And so as we look at the biomimicry of the genetic code, we find out that this brain was developed as a CPU chip to accelerate the communication between bacterium. That's pretty interesting. Is it possible that life is iterating again and again and again on this planet to reach the possibility of maximum communication potential? And I have to say that that's what the last 30 years of science looks to be telling us. Energy is infinite. Look out in the cosmos, listen to the astrophysicists, go listen to 10 podcasts on quantum physics. Energy is infinite. It doesn't have anything to do with an oil industry, doesn't have to do with anything with a solar industry, doesn't have to do with wind power. Energy is in absolutely everything. If we could just capture the amount of energy in this plastic tent, we could light Dallas. But we don't know how to liberate energy because we've failed to understand its origin, because we've failed to understand our origin, because we've failed to understand ourselves as a system that's iterating for higher potential. And so as we stop and take a look at our full potential, it's going to dwell down here in this interesting space between the possibility of life and its expression towards capturing the infinite energy towards the purpose of communication. And in a deep meditation I did uh, last year, I, I realized that the all infinite energy is actually all information. Every pixel of energy in the universe is a form of information. And we know this on a high level. We know how cell phones work. We know how the internet works vaguely, fiber optic cables. We know that energy is equivalent to information. But when you know this at the cellular level, and it really sinks in for you that energy is infinite and all energy is information. And then you ask, why is earth iterating life? Why for 4 billion years are we seeing this iteration of life get more and more complex, more and more biodiverse, more and more beautiful? I think it has something to do with the fact that the energy that is infinite, that is all information, is information for the purpose of communication. So let's take those three pieces away from us today. If you want to write three things down from this morning, because you won't remember a damn thing I said. Energy is infinite. All energy is information, and all information is there for the purpose of communication. So that is the purpose of life, is to iterate again and again, to refine our interface with energy, to become a better and better translator of energy into, and its information stream into pure communication. And the gut-brain axis is this extraordinary mechanism that looks to be biomimicry of the microbiome itself to improve the speed and transmission of information across species. That's what you are. You are a physical being designed to accelerate the communication between species. Your neurologic system is uniquely designed 
to accelerate and perfect the communication between tens of thousands of species of bacteria, hundreds of thousands of species of protozoa, millions of species of fungi, and one human species at the center to become the communication highway, to become the internet hub between these species. One of the biggest breakthroughs that happened to advance the complexity of the way in which we process information was fiber optic cables in cells. And this happened a couple billion years ago. And we saw, suddenly saw this leap in the size of animals and the intelligence of those animals. And so something like a, an Allosaurus or a Brontosaurus was I think three or four times the size of an elephant's body with a head that's the size of a horse's head and only eight plants, all right? So what had happened on this planet by 60 million years ago at the height of the Allosaurus was that plant life had become so dense in nutrient, i.e. light energy, that chlorophyll had captured carbon dioxide bound together into long chains of carbohydrates, fatty acids. Those carbon strings are batteries holding solar energy. The brontosaurus became a possibility when enough plant life could release enough light to sustain a body five times the size of an elephant with a head that was just going to eat the same amount as a horse in a day pulling green plant light out, out of rivers and swamps. They were herbivores. They didn't have dense proteins. They weren't eating bison. They were eating plants all day long, chewing away. And they weren't ruminants, which is, you know, ruminants are good at extracting even more energy from food than, than this brontosaurus could have done. So imagine the fern or the plant that that thing was eating to generate enough light energy to get in there. The breakthrough was in the fiber optic cables. So all this talk about light energy is making me pretty hungry. And if you're like me, you want to eat the most nutrient dense foods on the planet, which are going to have the most amount of this light energy in it. And to do that, you have to eat food from soil systems that are alive, that are robust, that are diverse and that are regenerating. So head over to the sponsor of this podcast, forceofnature.com and shop regenerative meats. Have those shipped to your door. The modern iteration of a brontosaurus eating a nutrient-dense firm might look something like you grilling a force of nature regenerative bison steak over a fire. So that's forceofnature.com. And now let's hop back on stage with Dr. Zach Bush. So if you do an electron microscopic image of a human cell, you see these dense cable systems that connect each cell to the next. And if you zoom in, you're now you know, 100 to 1,000 times smaller than a human hair in its circumference. There's tiny, tiny little cables that are packed together inside of that big cable running between the cells. And there might be 1,000 to 2,000 of these tiny little tubes that run between the cells. It's a very mysterious looking structure. It looks like a bicycle cable, you know, all these little strands going from cell to cell. And you think you see that electron microscope, you think, well, maybe that's, maybe that's just the, the, the structural system. Maybe those are the, the guy wires that hold all the cells together. They're not. These are called gap junctions. The guy wires are something called tight junctions. In my lab studies all the time. Tight junctions are the Velcro that hold the cell together. They're the big structural proteins. They rely on actin in these big proteins. These other filamentous cables are extremely ethereal in their quality, but the secret to their function is at the end of each of these tiny cables that's, you know, a thousand times smaller than a human hair is a perfect aperture in its three-dimensional structure, ability to open and close, just like the aperture on your old camera lenses that allow more or less light in. On the end of every one of those 10,000 little cables that tie one of your 70 trillion cells to the next, is a light aperture to change the amount of light energy going from one cell to the next. You can't imagine the beauty of this. And so the breakthrough was that one cell could shine light into another cell. And when we started to be able to share light across cellular systems, we gained function massively because information could travel via the light energy. And more importantly, perhaps the energy with it would travel. 
And so the breakthrough of the gap junction in multicellular organisms led to this leap of potential of biology on the planet so that more communication could happen. The first fiber optic cables were not developed by IBM. They were developed by biology to create the potential of multicellular life within the planet. I love the imagination of Mother Nature. Where did she come up with this stuff? What is the design? Who's coming up with the possibility of life at this level? And so we find ourselves at this tipping point of human history. We are at the tipping point where we will either continue our behavior and march into extinction, much to the relief of a nature that is being extractively killed by our behavior. Or recognizing ourselves as the existential threat to life on Earth, we will change our behavior. And so how are you and I going to do this? We are going to do it with that crazy four-minute workout. We are going to do it by taking our shoes off more often and walking in the dirt. We're going to do it by breathing real air and communicating that back to other humans by actually sitting and sharing space with them. We are going to do less Zoom calls, all right? Raise your hand if you commit to less Zoom calls, all right? Less Zoom, more hugs. This is how we light up humanity. When we light up you, we light up the species. When we light up the species, we light up a planet. When we light up the planet, we light up a solar system because we are the highest level of light expression in the solar system. And I'm quite literal about that. If you've read some of the books on mitochondria, it's pretty bonkers because the mitochondria fill your cells, plump full of your cytoplasm of all these mitochondria living inside of your cells. And one cubic centimeter of mitochondria produces 10,000 times more energy than one cubic centimeter than the surface of the sun. What is the brightest thing in our solar system? It is not the sun. It is you. Cubic centimeter by cubic centimeter, you are capable of producing more light energy than the sun. If you have heard of yourself as a light being, that person was right to share that information with you. You are a brilliant light. You shine so robustly, so infinitely. Light doesn't end. I love that. You look out in the stars and the scale is crazy, right? We have to measure it in light years, 180,000 miles per second or whatever we got for the speed of light. And it travels for eons to get to our eyeball to be like, oh, the Big Dipper. And we look for like one second, Big Dipper, cool, walk off. Holy smokes. Hundreds of thousands of light years away, these suns are burning. What bright lights are also shining in those solar systems? What organisms have led and learned to emit light as we do? We are a powerful force, and I believe that the entire cosmos, in a weird, energetic, mathematically relevant way, is paying attention to the vibration of what's going on on Earth right now because it can sense not a tipping point into our destruction, but a complete seismic shift in the amount of light energy we hold within ourselves. And so all of my companies right now are very much marching to the tune of how can we get more light energy into humanity? How can we light up each human being brighter? And so the eight-week program we do or these immersive retreats we're coming up with or the technologies we produce in our biochemical labs, biomedical labs, these are all with the purpose of how do we support light within the human being? Because I believe if just two people, where two or more are gathered, can shift to this fourth density of light. Right now, we, we have a certain amount of density of light within ourselves. We consider ourselves at the third density. And that separates us from a lot of the animals and feathers and minerals that are kind of at this first or second density of light energy. So we're the most dense energy source on the planet right now because of mitochondria, because of the way they release solar energy within our cells. We're third density. And we've done some amazing things. I love the ingenuity of farmers. I love the ingenuity of humans. But if we can do the fourth density shift, if we can get enough light energy, we will go through a transmutation that the species has never seen before. I believe we will look very similar. We will simply glow. You will see each other's glow more obviously when we hit that fourth density. And the iteration speed will, will pick up exponentially within every cell of our body. And we will see a vitality and a regenerative capacity at every cell level that has never been witnessed or experienced in human history of our 200,000 years. 
That's the pinnacle we're sitting on right now. And we're doing it through so many different angles of science to understand how we are and who we are and where we sit. But the simplicity of the, the behaviors that then allow that light energy to rise are phenomenally simple and beautiful. Dr. Blackburn, who got the, she, she won the Nobel Prize for discovering telomerase, which is one of the enzymes that repairs DNA and the ends of DNA strands. And she, for many years, was paid huge money by drug companies to try to find a drug that would turn on telomerase to improve it, because that'd be this longevity drug, and everybody would spend millions of dollars on it. It'd be great. She traveled around. Now she travels the country 25 years later, lecturing on what turns on telomerase. And the thing that turns it on better than anything else is spiritual song of any peoples. Spiritual song turns on DNA repair. And she's done it in Baptist choirs. She's done it in the South down there. She's done it in, with you know, indigenous peoples in the Amazon. She's done it in Africa. Every single spiritual song she's been witness to, she can show that it turns on telomerase. So what does it look like to burn brighter? It looks a lot like looking into a fire together, looking downwards in particular. When the, the human gaze shifts down and looks at the frequency of light emitted from a candle or a fire, we start to burn brighter. We increase our metabolism and the rate of, of thinking and creativity within the body. It's a weird reaction to firelight. We became the masters of firelight, and that firelight then inspired us to become greater forces of light. I love that pattern that we have started to show. And so what is it going to look like? We're going to spend more time outside, barefoot, around campfires, singing spiritual song together and vibrating at a higher level and understanding the role of the microbiome in nursemating our gut lining to take care of our tight junctions to make sure this vessel is tight. Because if you're going to burn bright and hold all that light, you got to have your boundaries intact. Let me repeat that. If you are going to hold more light, you need your boundaries intact. What did we do to our boundaries the last two years? What the heck are we doing? Let's make strong boundaries, people. Let's celebrate each other's boundaries. How do you know somebody's boundaries? You talk to them, you listen to them, you feel them, and you hug them. This is my boundary. Feel my boundary on your boundary. Feel my chest on your chest. Feel my heartbeat on your heartbeat. Feel my love on your love. Feel my heart beating next to your heart. That's the shit we're here to do. That's how we're going to light it up. We want to feel alive. We want to feel tingly. We want to feel the infusion of transfer of information because it is all energy and energy is infinite. And we are the highest form of communication on the planet. And we are here to be the refinement of communication between all species. So thanks for showing up at the tipping point of all things. You all showed up right now. I don't know where we are in time. I don't know if there's a time holder there, but I'm about to wrap up. So uh, whatever we're doing, five minutes. So as we think about why you showed up, I want to shake the humanness off of you for a second. Because your humanness is a bunch of beliefs about who you are and it's shrinking you and it's keeping the lid on you. You might think you're somebody's child. You might think you're somebody's parent. You might think you're somebody's boss. You might think you're somebody's employee. You might think you're some community's PTA board member. You might think you're some iteration of all of the above. I want to blow that all off of you. There it goes. I'm blowing it off of you people. It is not going to survive the next few minutes. I want to blow all of that off of you. You are so much bigger than all that. If you just heard anything I said, you just realized that you are brighter than the sun. You have more genetic potential than any creature in human history because through our chemical agricultural behavior, we have put more stress on this planet than has ever existed, at least in the least 60, last 55 million years, the last great extinction being at that point. And the way in which that happened was through death of the topsoil. 55 million years ago was an asteroid that came, smashed the planet, a layer of dust choked out all the aerobic function of the topsoil. It's when the topsoil can't breathe, the ocean acidifies, and at that moment, you lose about 90% of life on Earth. And that happens within months or years when that ocean acidifies. 
What are we doing right now? We're killing 97% of arable soils planet-wide are now depleted or severely depleted. We've killed 97% of indigenous peoples and cultures. We have wiped out all of the resources of biodiversity on the planet through chemical agriculture and the like. And for that, we put more stress on the planet than ever before, which meant we created more viral potential than ever before. You are a sun ready to make this cosmic leap to the fourth density of light and capture all of that potential. And I love that mother nature never went back to make the brontosaurus. No doubt reverence for those animals, the triceratops, crazy cool. If I was mother nature, go make that thing again for sure. Pterodactyl, can you imagine a pterodactyl? These huge 25 foot wingspans, these bat-like creatures with these long beaks like pelicans sweeping down, scooping up prey. Bam, that stuff's amazing to think about. But nature thought, had an imagination greater than that. And she said, you know what we could do? All this new genetic potential after this asteroid, we could go from ferns and reptiles to deciduous trees, wildflowers, mammals, birds. She iterated so much more beautifully than any human mind could have. She took potential and birthed it in extreme biodiversity. We've never gotten back to the density of nutrition that the brontosaurus enjoyed in those plants. Our animals can't grow that big. Our animals are much smaller because there's less nutrient density in the food we eat. So we need to learn to become creators, co-creators with the mother earth to get her soils back capable of making the soil and the plants so rich that they would be able to support life as powerfully bright as the dinosaurs. But whatever comes after this extinction, She's not gonna suffer back after this extinction to go make dolphins again, which breaks my heart. Extinction's real, it's, it's really final. These things iterated to express life at the highest level they could. We're losing one species to extinction, done, every 20 minutes. And so in listening to me, we've seen five species go extinct, not to come back. And we should have reverence for that but we should not get bogged down in the emotionality of that because we've already done it. We should instead be inspired to do the next thing that nature would do, which is imagine beyond that. When we become co-creators, if we do, we get to stay and play in a sandbox of genetic potential that has never been seen before on the planet because we have more biodiverse species at this moment than we did at the time of the dinosaurs. And so what are the wildflowers going to imagine next when humans take this leap either into our extinction or into our fourth density of light. What is the wildflower going to imagine? What kind of plant? And you can watch movies, Avatar or something like that, and get a movie maker's idea of what that world might look like. It, it pales in comparison because every sunset I've ever seen is, is more beautiful than anything they created on Avatar, which I love because the human mind is too simple of a, a, a processing device to imagine the iteration of wildflowers. Wildflowers, they got it figured out. They've got a niche in the beauty industry that we haven't quite perfected in our space. You are the most beautiful creature imagined so far. You're the brightest being within our solar system. The potential lies within us to do something completely radically different. And so when you farm, I want you to know that you're at the epicenter of potential. When you set your mind and creative capacity to expand the microbiome diversity beneath your feet, to support that, and then allow your neurologic system to come in contact with that microbiome by breathing it, by touching it, by smelling it and breathing it in, letting it be part of your food. Stop washing your food into oblivion and eat the soil. When you bring in that soil intelligence and you are going to have new fingers on the keyboard of your computer, and you're gonna type a new term paper, and it's gonna be something of beauty. And you may just drop out of that class, quit the college, and start writing spiritual song instead. You are here to iterate beautifully. I am honored to be part of your community. I am honored to be part of your iterative experience. I've put a lot of words into the environment today but know that I've put much more genetic information into the air around you through my breath, that you would breathe me in, that I would change your genome, that you would share that back to me, that we would iterate life between us. We are changing each other's genetics 
and our energetics by being together today. I love that science, but I much more like the human experience of it. And so as we wrap this talk and we get ready for the phenomenal lineup that we have today, we will end in a moment of silence. And then we are going to give each other a whole bunch of hugs. And then we are going to cheer for Mother Nature if you feel inspired. We can clap, we can cheer, we can do whatever it is, but I want the hugs. I want there to be a deep reverence between you and the persons I hope you haven't met before next to you. I want the hugs to be the first exchange. If you know the people at your table, go to a different table and hug somebody you don't know and make the first exchange love. Make it beauty. Make the recognition of beauty in the other individual the first sentence you speak to each other. Recognize that beauty and you will feel deep love and you will feel the tears and you will feel the heart expand. We're here to shift everything. That's why you're putting in this time this weekend. You didn't come here to learn about science. You didn't hear, come here to do soil and do any of doctor stuff. You came here to change the current paradigm radically. And we'll do it the way that we do it, through light, through possibility, through co-creative potential. I appreciate your time. Thanks for your attention. Thank you, Zach Bush. I mean, have you ever felt so inspired? I am radiating at the deepest cellular level at my highest energy capacity right now. I feel like you and me together that we can change the current paradigm radically. We can burn brighter than the sun. You and I have the gift, the opportunity to co-create alongside Mother Nature and enter the fourth density of light together, hand in hand and heart in heart. Massive thanks to Dr. Zach Bush for joining us, for being that inspiring voice of our potential and of all things hope. Thank you for coming to our What Good Shall I Do conference. It was amazing having you. If you wanna connect more with Dr. Zach Bush, I suggest that you head over to ZachBushMD.com. You can also check out some of his amazing organizations that are driving large-scale change. My favorite, Farmer's Footprint, which is a path to soil health and food independence through regenerative agriculture. It's a movement supported by the medical findings and wisdom of Zach Bush and, of course, Mother Nature. I'll also reference a new health course that Dr. Zach Bush put out. It's called The Journey of Intrinsic Health. It's a revolutionary eight-week personal health transformation journey. And I know a couple people that are doing this and they are saying that it's the most impactful, life-changing, powerful collective group that they've ever been a part of in their health journey. As always, if you enjoyed this episode of Where Hope Grows, please head over to your favorite podcast medium and give us a review, click five stars, subscribe. That really helps this podcast gain traction and amplify and accelerate our message of hope, of love, and a deep reverence and connection to Mother Nature. Last but not least, I want to thank Force of Nature, who is the sponsor of this podcast, but they are also the curator of the What Good Shall I Do conference, which this live recording was taken from. So if you want to learn more, head over to forceofnature.com, shop the regenerative meats. You can have these soil building, ecosystem healing, nourishing meats delivered to your door. And you can burn brighter than the sun when you eat grass-fed regenerative bison. I'm pretty convinced that's a scientific fact. So that's forceofnature.com. And that's it. Go out there, lead with love, vibrate at your highest capacity, and carry kindness and beauty in your heart. Farewell, friends. <laughs>